Well, yesterday was my birthday, my 40th birthday. And yeah, yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. I thought I'd be dead by 40, but here I am. Not. I thought that uh, turning 40 would be no big deal for me. I really did. I kind of like low profile birthdays. So I was kind of just trying to slide through my 40th birthday. But I was with my, my physician about six weeks ago and get, just getting an annual kind of general checkup. And he kind of looked at his notes. He said, well, you're, you're turning 40 this year, right? And I was like, yeah, right. And then he kind of kind of looked at me and he said, well, you better start working out then. So, so that was encouraging. <laughs> and um, I, I started working out. I did start working out. And it got me thinking about turning 40. And, I, and I've actually, since that time, I've been a bit reflective about turning 40, as you can imagine, um, thinking about my life and my family, big things and small things, even the passage that I'm going to teach today, I've been a bit more reflective in my approach to it. And so in continuing with my current frame of mind, I I thought I might just take a moment here on the front end to, to reflect out loud a bit about where we are in Ephesians and where I am in my life now 40 years old. And truthfully, as I entered the passage this week, even as I worked through the passage this week, even up until yesterday and and this morning, I've struggled some. I've not been near as excited about teaching this particular passage as I have been some of the others in Ephesians. How's that for a birthday present, getting a passage you don't even want to teach? How about that? Yeah, that's where I've been this week. I've wrestled with it. I've struggled with it. My energy for the text has been less than it normally is. Of course, that could be because I'm so much older now. I think that goes down, but it's been less. And and I think a lot of that has to do with the tension that we find in the text, a tension that is very tangible in, in my own life. And that is the tension between being and doing. You see, the first half of the book of Ephesians is all about being what it means to be in Christ, what it means to be a child of God, what it is that God does so that we might be his. That's the first half of the book. And the second half of the book, where we are now in chapter four and going forward all the way through chapter six is about doing. It's about how we act. It's about how we live. It's about how we conduct our lives. And and I struggle, I do, I, I struggle when the Bible tells us to do something. It's not that I disagree with it. I believe that the Bible is the inspired, authoritative word of God. I believe it's true for every level of life and faith and practice. I I believe that. It's not that I disagree with it. It's because of the way that I have lived for my first 40 years. See, I'm a doer. Do things. I, I do lots and lots of good things. I've done lots and lots of godly things, but my doing has been historically because I believe that doing is what made God approve of me. That's what motivated my doing. What does God think of me today? Well, it depends on what I've done today. Motivated to do godly things from a very ungodly perspective, from a very unbiblical perspective place. Lots and lots of good things that have never satisfied my soul. And I've lived over on this doing side for for so long that when we started this book in Ephesians chapter 1 through 3, it was incredibly refreshing for me. All that we are in Christ was just 
a breath of fresh air. It was like a river of fresh mountain water to my dry and parched soul. And now that we're transitioning from that to doing what we now go and do with who we are in Christ, it starts to feel to me like a return to the old me. That's what it starts to feel like. Starts to feel like now I got to go do something to make God approve of me. I, f- I feel that tension. I feel that tension in the room. You know, some of you are like me. Some of you are just the opposite of me. I love chapters 1 through 3, but just tell me what to go and do now. Well, good news for you. Chapters 4 through 6 are fresh mountain doing for you the rest of the way. You're like, you got it. It's coming. It's good. It's both and. Isn't There's tension for me in the text as well as Paul makes this shift. You know, Paul, of course, is not motivated to do in the way that I've been motivated to do over the better part of my last 40 years. And my hope for the next 40 is that I will grow to understand Paul's motivation for doing and that you and I will grow and understand together how these two things, both being and doing, actually fit perfectly together. It's my hope for my next 40, and it's my hope for us even beginning today in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. So I want you to take your Bible out, if you will, and open up to Ephesians chapter 4, 4, verses 14 to 16. We're going to walk through the text this morning, and we're going to look at what it is that Paul tells us to do, look at why that is important, and then we're going to come back full circle to see if we can understand what it is that motivates Paul to do it. But first, we need to review briefly. We need to review because verses 14 to 16 right here in chapter 4 are part of a larger paragraph. Part of a larger thought Lloyd introduced last week that Paul describes as his blueprint for the church. And Lloyd said last week that there are four parts to the blueprint. There is the principle, there is the price, There is the process and there is the product. Principle, price, process, and product. The principle is this. The principle is that every single one of us has been given a spiritual gift. The minute you place your trust in Jesus Christ, you are bestowed a spiritual gift for the good of the church and for the glory of God. And that gift was bought with a price. Jesus Christ secured that gift for you and for me through great cost. He paid for that gift on the cross. So we have the principle and the price. And then the next piece of the blueprint is the process. And that is that the leaders of the church, the work of the leaders of the church is to equip the saints, that is you, for the work of service. So our responsibility is to equip you. That's why we teach the way we do. That's why we do the things that we do to equip you to do the work of ministry, to serve in the church. And it doesn't mean just inside the walls of this church. It does mean that, but it also means to serve as the church in our community by using your particular gift. And the product of all of that is Christ-like maturity. This is where it all comes together that not only when you use your gift do you grow into the people around you that get to experience your gift grow, but the whole church, the whole body of Christ grows together. And it's that maturity that Paul expounds upon in verses 14 
15 and 16. Three things that will be visible in us as we grow to maturity. Paul says that Christ-like maturity is about our convictions, it's about our conduct, and it's about our community or our connection with one another. Paul says about our convictions is in verse 14. So pick it up with me. I actually pick it up with me in verse 11 for a little bit of context, and then we'll unpack what he says about convictions in verse 14. Paul writes, and he gave, that is God, gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers. Those are the roles and responsibilities of the leadership of the church. And here's what they do. They equip the saints, verse 12, for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all, that is the whole body, attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man. There's maturity. To a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness fully grown up in Christ. Verse 14. As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men or by craftiness in deceitful scheming. Paul says when it comes to our spiritual lives, don't live like a child. Don't don't be childish. And then he paints this picture of immaturity. And the immature Christian is a whole lot like this beach ball that I have up here floating on the ocean. I want you to imagine that for just a minute. This beach ball floating out on the ocean is just getting pushed back and forth by the waves, whichever way the tides might be rolling or the undercurrent might be pulling. This beach ball, that's what it looks like to be an immature believer, tossed back and forth by the surf, up in the air and down, back on the water, whipped around by The wind, whichever way the wind decides to gust and blow. If I were to throw this ball out to you right now, we started batting it around back and forth here and there and everywhere. That's the picture of what it looks like to be an immature Christian. So we'll see how good you are at it, at batting it around. Nice work. Way better than the first service already. Nice job. Oh boy, we got some heads. Oh, there we go. Okay. So you're about six deep. Nice hit, Don Meyer. Stand up and take a bow. That was a big, yeah, that was strong right there. Very strong. That was sweetness is what that was. Picture of immature Christianity. It's unstable, right? Easily influenced, fickle, uh, confused, easily deceived, the text says. Entirely at the mercy of the cultural winds and waves and If I can just say this for a minute about the cultural winds and waves, the cultural winds and waves that crash against our faith, that stand against our growth to maturity, they have never been more anti-biblical in our country than they are today. They haven't been. That's just reality. They are strong against evangelical Belief. I believe that the air and water is only growing more and more acidic. I really do. I'll give you an example of that. I have a USA Today app on my phone. I get these kind of noteworthy news updates daily, four or five a day. And over the past several months, every single week, I've gotten 
multiple updates about state court decisions, judges ruling in the states on the definition of marriage. Redefining marriage in a way very different than the way that they as a state have defined marriage for the past 200 years. Very, very different. And when it comes to the biblical text, and when it comes to the crashing waves and winds that, that hold against us, it's like not only is the biblical definition of marriage being confronted and the voice of the church being marginalized, but I believe that evangelical Christians in this particular discussion have already been dismissed altogether. I do. It's like we're trying to figure out how to be a minority voice of both truth and love and and not even sit at the table anymore, not even be a part of the discussion. That, That is a very strong cultural wind that blows against. It's easy to be susceptible to it. Why did I say that this verse, this particular verse, is about core convictions? Well, it's because core convictions are the mark of our spiritual maturity. Core convictions are not so much like the beach ball. They are more like this shot put ball, which I I can't even hardly hold for very long. I could do like maybe two of these right here. That's about it. This thing's heavy. The shot put ball is is not going to be moved much by the wind or the waves, is it? Shot put ball is, is steady, stable, secure. There's some fortitude, some weight, some substance to this shot put ball. If I were to throw this out, if I were to launch this out there, which I'm not, don't worry, right down here, yeah. If I were to throw this out and it were to land in your lap, it would stay there for a minute. It would plant itself there for a moment. A non-core conviction is like this beach ball, right? Floating around here and there and everywhere, depending on which way the wind blows. A core conviction is so foundational, so core, so weighty in you that it is you. And you could just think for just a minute about how, how these two things were formed, right? Like this one I blew up in about 30 seconds, filled with air. This one took some time to get the impurities out, to make, it the white, to make it the right weight. This took some time, and so does our maturity. Core convictions are much more like this, and sometimes it takes the wind and the waves crashing against us to know what our core convictions really are. When I was an RA resident assistant in the athletic dorm at TCU during my years there. I remember when I first took the position and, and I, I truly believed that I had some core convictions that would actually help me in the job. I took the responsibility seriously. I committed to confronting where I needed to and engaging where I needed to. I remember the very first time that I smelled marijuana on the hallway. And I remember walking to the door knowing that I needed to do something about it. That was not only a core conviction, but a part of my responsibility. And I remember walking up to the door, trying to get up the nerve to knock on the door. And I remember walking away from the door, down the hall, 
Then I kind of worked it up again, like I really do believe this, walking back to the door, down the hall. I did it three times, back and forth. Finally, I just found myself on the way back to the room, my, my room, and I didn't do anything about it. My core conviction floating away with the first gust of wind. Paul says here, and it's pretty tough, he says, we can't do that and grow to Christ-like maturity. Our convictions must hold us in place. Our convictions must be stable and solid and secure. Well, the second thing that Paul says to us about maturity has to do with our conduct. Our maturity is a reflection, it's visible, it's a reflection of our Conduct, and that's found in verse 15. So pick it up there with me in chapter 4, verse 15. It says, but, we know this is going to be a contrast to what he just said in 14 when we see the word but, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. Now, here that we have the opposite, right? We have the picture of maturity what it looks like to grow up into adulthood. And the mature believer is different than the meat ball as well. The mature believer not only has core convictions, but it's kind of like a buoy in the ocean, not a beach ball floating on the ocean. It's like a buoy stationed in the ocean, you know, a directional buoy that that helps boaters know to slow down in the harbor or to know that the coastline is close by. It's a buoy that is anchored deep into the ocean floor that rolls a bit with the punches but never abandons it foundation. That's the thought as Paul describes it here. And that level of maturity, that that mature person that stays firm, stays in place, that maturity is found in the person who, Paul says, speaks the truth in love. Now, the English language, it doesn't help us much here. Speaking the truth in Greek is actually one word. It's a verb, and it's literally translated truthing, like truthing in love. The the emphasis Here is not so much on what we say, that's a part of it, but not so much on what we say as it is what we do, our conduct, how we live truth. So maturity then is about doing life anchored in truth and acting in love. Okay, Anchored in truth and acting in love. That is that every area of our lives, We do, how we act, what we say, what we think. Every area of our lives should evidence truth and love in a way that's different than the world around us. In a way that's different than the cultural winds that blow. We act different. We work different. We handle our money different. We treat people different. Why? Because we aren't beach balls anymore empty and hollow on the inside, we have some level of substance, strength, a weightiness that is actually anchored in God's truth and His love. When it comes to maturity in Christ, truth and love, they're just inseparable. You cannot pull them apart 
and work your way to maturity. In other words, you can be truthful, you can know the truth and still be immature. And every one of us knows people who are full of knowledge, who know truth and yet use truth in harmful and hurtful ways. People who use truth to control or to get an edge or even to start a fight, sometimes to abuse. John Stott says that truth like that is hard if it's not softened with love. And you can be loving and still be immature. So committed to demonstrating love that you're willing to sacrifice truth to do it. John says this about that kind of love, that that love is soft if not strengthened by the truth. And I believe that these two things, when they are separate, even in the church, I believe that they are the subtle cultural winds that blow in the church, like the truth is enough if I bring all the truth to it, or love is enough if I bring all the truth to it. Paul says, no, wrong. Those things have to stay together. And it's not easy to maintain that. In any given moment. Not easy to engage with both truth and love. When does the truth sound firm with my kids? When does the truth look very gracious? That is the walk of a maturing believer. I was in a setting this year where this just popped to the forefront. I was watching my daughter Emma's in sixth grade. She played on the middle school softball team this year in a game Earlier this year, I was sitting on the bleachers in in front of a man who was making some very derogatory comments about one of the players, one of the girls on the other team. And he was making them loud, loud enough for all of us to hear, loud enough for the parents and the other set of bleachers to hear, and loud enough that this girl could hear. And they were harmful things, so harmful that I don't even want to repeat them in here this morning. And I'm thrust in the middle of it. I'm literally sitting right in front of him, just a little bit to the right. He's behind me right here. And and I'm trying to figure out, what does it look like to truth this dude, right? Like, truth this dude in love. What does that look like? How how do I engage that? And what I wanted to do was say some words to him, most of them that had four letters. That's what I wanted to do, but that would be doing the same thing that he was doing to this girl, so that didn't get me anywhere. And then what I wanted to do was I wanted to get this man off by himself, but he's an older fellow and walked in with a cane. He was sitting in the middle of this group. I wasn't going to get him off in the woods to have a conversation. I didn't even know him, so I'm trying to figure out what it looks like to truth him, and, and I'm sitting there in front of him, and he says one more thing. This is like the seventh or eighth thing that he said, and it is just way over the top. And so I turn around, I'm steaming. He knows I'm steaming. I catch his eye and you're going to have to go back a ways for this, but have you ever had like a stare fight? (laughs) This is what happened. We had a two minute stare fight. Me like this, him like this, all the people in the bleachers like this. (laughs) It was awkward. It was awkward, and it's like, this thing's on. Neither one of us are going to look away. It's, it's appropriate that we were at a middle school softball game, isn't it? Yeah. Well, you need to know this. This is an important fact in the story. Um, I won the stair fight. I won. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. I'm proud, very proud of that. Um, I won, and actually, I acted in truth. I, I, I was true to me. 
I needed to do something in that moment. I did. I, I knew that I needed to do something. I was true to me and I was true about him, but I wasn't loving at all. And here's the point in the text. My truthing would have been far more loving, would have far, been far more weighty if this guy could have known that I cared about him too. Now that's difficult, isn't it? I don't know the guy. How do you build a relationship with the guy? How does all that work? How does that work in the church? How does that work in my family? How does that work in my life, in my business, in my ministry? How, how does that work? That's difficult. And that's the road to maturity. Figuring out what it looks like to walk in both truth and love in any given moment. And it requires a whole lot of building to it. Like, I'm going to have to make a number of mistakes to actually figure out what it looks like to truth and love. See, my tendency is just to start backing off, to withdraw. No, Paul says engage with truth and love and figure out, grow up to maturity along the way. Then the last thing that Paul says to us here, last thing he tells us to do is that maturity doesn't happen apart from communities. He tells us to come in contact with one another. See this in verse 16. So look at verse 16. He's talking about Christ, of course. And he says, From whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. This phrase there at the beginning, by what every joint supplies. It's a very interesting phrase. Certainly Paul here is developing the body metaphor, right? He's talking about the individual parts of the body, the whole body. But when he comes to this particular phrase, by what every joint supplies, that phrase helps us to understand how the individual parts, you and me and everybody around you, how they relate to one another and how our coming in contact, our connection with one another actually impacts the whole body. That, that's what he's talking about here. This verse in Romans 12, 5, it helps us. Paul wrote this. He said, so we, talking about the church, though many are one body in Christ, and individually we are members of one another. We are connected. And that's what this word joint means. It refers to our connection, the connection in the body, our connection as a community of faith. That when we come in contact with one another, when we do life together, when we step into each other's lives, when we make ourselves known to one another, that kind of contact with what, which won't be with every single person, obviously, but that kind of contact with those in the body not only sharpens you and grows you, but it has an exponential effect on the whole thing. Stimulates the whole body. In fact, Paul says here that our maturity can't happen apart from that level of community. Of course, this is analogous to the human body, which is Paul's point here, where each cell is an individual entity and makes its contribution to the whole, but is not isolated from the other cells. The way the human body works. So you take liver cells, for example. Liver cells, if they are healthy and doing their part, they not only help the liver to function properly, but they contribute to the health and to the growth of the other organs in the body. 
and those other organs at the same time, if they are healthy, the cells within them are healthy and functioning properly, not only do they function well, but they contribute to the growth and the health and the development of the liver. And all of those organs together, and this is the point, they give life to the body. Okay, That's how this works. Now, I don't want you to miss two things here in this last verse, two phrases. Paul says there toward the beginning, he says, uh, from whom the whole body, here's the phrase, being fitted. Now, stay with me here. I'm going to do a little bit of grammar work. That, that, that being fitted is a present passive participle. Being fitted and held together by the head who is Christ. Present passive participle, meaning that he is responsible for all the individual parts. Christ is. We have a passive relationship to the work that God does to put all the parts together. Remember the gift Lloyd talked about last week, a gift that each one of us has been given. Remember, it is the most perfectly fitted and uniquely suited gift that you will ever receive. Why is it the most perfectly fitted and uniquely gifted gift that you will ever receive? Uniquely suited gift that you will ever receive? It's because Christ gave it to you and he's in charge of bringing all the parts together that the body might function properly. Your gift is needed for the growth of the body. Not, Not everyone in the room is a liver cell. Everyone has to bring their part and do their part. So we can't miss that. And also don't miss this. This is toward the end of the verse. Paul says first, the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body. Here's the phrase, for the building up of itself. Grammatically, that is a present middle indicative, meaning that even though Christ is leading the whole, your part really matters. This is the part that we are responsible for. God's responsible for the whole, fitting all the parts together. We own our part in it. We are active in it. We have all that we need to grow, but if we don't do our part, it's on us. Spiritually mature, they understand and they do their part. If there's a part of the body that's sitting off in the stands, then the whole body suffers. I told you I was working out. I'm working out with a group right down here in Cool Springs. And one of the guys that's been away for a while has come back to the group. And he said to me this week, he said, I came back not to just get fit, but I came back because I knew that I needed to be around some other Christian men. He could have said it this way. I knew that I needed to be around other members of the body. He needs that for his growth, for his health, for his encouragement, for his maturity, and we need him. Works simultaneously both ways. So Paul, in his blueprint for the church, he gives us three things to do. He says, develop some core convictions so you won't be swayed by the cultural waves and winds. He says, speak the truth in love because your conduct is a sign of your maturity. And then he says, give your gift to the church for the good of others and for the glory of God. Now, there's one last thing that I want to mention from this text. 
And I believe that this thing is the key ingredient to all that Paul has just told us to do. This is the one thing that connects our being to our doing. And it's the one thing that motivates Paul to call us to live out the blueprint for the church. This key ingredient may not surprise you. The key ingredient is love. We saw it in verse 15 as it was connected to the truth. But it's not just there. It actually forms what's called an inclusio. That is a a summary, kind of bookends to this whole section, verse 1 of chapter 4 to verse 16. We see it first in chapter 2, and then we see love again at the end of verse 16. So it's true that nothing Paul calls us to do can happen apart from love. Certainly can't speak the truth, but we also can't live in community with one another apart from love. But it's not our love for others that I'm talking about now. It's God's love for us. You see, you don't have to look very far to find this key ingredient. You don't have to look very far to find Jesus Christ himself embodying love For us. So if you look back at chapter 3, verse 19, you see it in spades that Paul, just before he turns the corner, speaks of the infinite love of Jesus Christ. You'll remember this the height, the depth, the length, the breadth of the love of Jesus Christ. That love is limitless. End of chapter 3. Then chapter 4, he tells us to go now and love others. Listen to me on this. The order really matters. It really matters. In fact, throughout the New Testament, we see that ethical imperatives, that is what we as Christians are to go and do, are always based on theological indicatives. That is who God is and who we are in him that is being it always throughout the new testament in the church follows that particular order in other words our doing our obedience is always a response to god's doing his love for us always god acts first and we respond to him, when he demonstrates his love for us, we respond by reflecting his glory, empowered by his spirit. We respond then and only then to love others. We don't have the capacity to just go and do, to just go and love apart from God's love to us. We don't. So the order really, really matters. When I do to try to make God love me, it always comes up empty, always. When I do, in response to how much God has already loved me, it's the most satisfying thing on this planet. And it will be the most satisfying thing for us, for you and me, for all of eternity to come. I want you to take a minute. We always ask the question, so what? So what? So we heard this. What do we do with this? How do we take in a applied in our lives. And I want you to take just a minute to reflect on this short text. 
to reflect on what Paul says to do about convictions, conduct, and community, and, and then to reflect for a moment on what motivates Paul to do it, motivates him to say it to us, and ask the Spirit of God to show you just one way in light of all four of those things to apply His truth in your life this week. Take just a minute to go before Him. Would you do that? Father, the tension that we live in between being and doing is a difficult one. But it is also a beautiful one. Because you have perfectly orchestrated it for our good, for the good of the church, and for your glory. And so in the moments that we resist, when we know that we are to do, would you grow us by the power of your Spirit in those moments to maturity? And in the moments that we act trying to earn your approval or your love, when we already have it, would you remind us that we are yours? Would you allow us to bump back and forth between those tensions, not like a beach ball floating in the wind, crashing with the waves? but more like a shot put ball. Steady, solid, stable, faithful. That's my prayer for me and my prayer for each one in this room. And we ask that in Jesus' name, amen. You know, we have never been more committed to truth here at Fellowship. Always have been. God, please help us to always be. My prayer is that we would be, as a body, marked by the love of God as well. That we would hold those two things in tension. And that we would live to maturity in Him. Go in peace. I'll see you next week.